Amen. Thank you, Austin. Uh, so good morning again. Uh, thank you for your patience with us as we try to figure out how to accommodate the people that are coming. I'll be quite honest with you. Um, the number one thing uh, that we need is, in order to be able to transition to two services or do whatever comes next is uh, we need help with kids. And so if you're not currently helping with kids, Tammy's going to be calling you and I need you to get ready to say yes to whatever she asks you to do, right? Let's practice this. This is your response. And then the word comes out of your mouth because that, that is really in our church. Um, last week, last week uh, 50% of the people in attendance here were 18 years old or younger. And that's a great thing. No, it is a great thing. There you go, clapping again. I want you to clap, but I, this, is your, this is your response is when Tammy calls, whatever you need me to do, okay? Because that really is, that's, that's the, that's the holdup. That's the thing that we're struggling with is how to figure out how to make sure we can have the full complement of stuff with kids. So be patient with us, please. Uh, we are making our way through the Gospel of Mark uh, throughout the school year. I will take a break around Christmas time for a little bit, but otherwise we're going to just make our way through this Gospel. And so we've come... Uh, this morning to Mark chapter 2 and Mark 3, where the chapter headings are artificial. Mark is grouping particular parts of his gospel into themes thematically. And the theme this morning of this last section of the second chapter and the first part of the third chapter, you'll see very clearly themed around the idea of Sabbath. And so uh, let's read together beginning in Mark 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's printed for you in your worship folder. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. So hear from God's word this morning. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And this is the part I want you to pay attention to. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again, he entered into the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And immediately the Pharisees went out, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, here's the thing. The gospel is grace. It is love to the undeserving. And the kingdom, because it is the gospel of the kingdom here in Mark, the kingdom is <clears throat> a gift. It is God's work for us and in us and through us, not the work that we do for God. And therefore, if that is true, if the gospel is grace and if the kingdom is gift, then the way of Jesus is rest. Disciplined, joyful rest. And you know, I started to think about this. I don't know why I've never really given much consideration to the fact that Florida, we live in this wonderful place where 
people come to find rest. People come to Florida because they're needing rest. They come either on vacation or at the end of their life in retirement. So whether it's the beaches or the lakes or the golf courses or the happiest place on earth or Universal or Legoland, whatever it might be, Florida, I think, is an interesting case study in how our culture thinks about rest, the state itself. But of course, most of us, we live here And I wonder how living in a place where the country comes to rest has affected our view of work and rest. I'm sure it has. And so we probably should give it some consideration. So I'm grateful for this time in this text this morning. Matthew 11, verse 28, which was our call to worship at the very beginning of the service. In that passage, Jesus invites us to come to him for rest. And in verse 29 there, he tells us that it is something that we have to learn by taking up his yoke and following him. Now that's an interesting mixing of metaphors there because the promise of rest and the image of yoke seem at first at least to be contradictory because the yoke of course was the piece of wood that was placed across the shoulders of the ox or the horse as they were working in the field to maximize their work so that they could lean their body into it and and create momentum towards the plowing of the fields. So what we learn there is that Jesus isn't offering rest without work. He is inviting us into a restful kind of work that actually makes work better and then also makes our resting better. So I feel like I have to say this. Work is good. It is not a part of the fall. Burdensome work, tiring work, thorns and thistles and those sorts of things, that's a product of the fall, but not the work itself. And I say that because I'm very concerned about our collective view of work in our culture, especially among younger generations. I don't mean to pick on you guys, but, but it is a real thing. The Wall Street Journal ran a piece last week and then another this week about the idea of quiet quitting. Have you heard of this? Quiet quitting. If you haven't, you will very, very soon. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but it's, it refers to a social media phenomenon, particularly on TikTok. You know, all things that originate on TikTok are worthy of your consideration, of course. You know, where people are, people are making, what do you call TikToks? TikToks. They're making these videos, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm showing my age. Where people are rejecting the idea of going above and beyond in their work. So they're not quitting, necessarily. They're just... They're, they're play-acting about doing the absolute minimum to not get fired. You know, like, w- just whatever I have to do to get by so that nobody pays any attention to me, and I don't, I don't, so it's quiet quitting. And some of it's joking, some of it's serious, and again, if you haven't heard of it, I'm sure you will soon, but the Wall Street Journal ran a couple of articles, and critics of this idea of quiet quitting, the quiet quitting movement, obviously are concerned that it's rooted in a deficient view of work. The idea that work can be meaningful in the way it's going away in our society, that it can be worth sacrificing, giving yourself to, and giving your all to. And they say, you know, these younger generations, these TikTokers are just lazy. And of course, proponents on the other side say, no, that's unfair. What's happening is these people are looking for a way to avoid burnout because working is not bad, but overworking it is. And of course, that's true as well. Now, Christianity has a lot to say about this, about taking work too seriously and overworking and burnout. Those are signs of a deficient view of work also. So is not taking work seriously enough. 
We are to do our work, whatever it is, with soul, the Bible says. It actually heartily is, is the word Paul uses in Colossians 3, 23. We, we, we work as unto the Lord, heartily. And that word is the word psyche, with soul. There's, there's music that has soul, right? And then there's work that has soul. And soul music is characterized as such because in soul music... The music is dominated by the rhythm section. It's all about the bass and the drums. It's the cadence. It's the in and the out and the way the music comes and goes. And it's the same with work. Soul work is about rhythm. And so the Bible's answer to how to avoid overworking and underworking and find the right balance is that. It's rhythm, the right rhythm of work and rest and rest and work. And core to the biblical idea of a proper rhythm of work and rest is this idea of Sabbath, the practice of Sabbath. And so this section in Mark's gospel, beginning in chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6, is all about Sabbath, the ancient Jewish practice of taking one day every seven and refusing to do any work as an act of obedience and worship to God. And it was extremely important in Judaism. It was one of the Ten Commandments, remember. We read that earlier as well. There were some rather harsh implementations of that rule that might seem to us to go too far. So the Mishnah, which was the rabbinic oral tradition, for example, classified 39 different types of work that were forbidden, including tying and untying knots. So be careful not to do that, right? And so there were all these these minutiae that, that Sabbath observance got... <laughs> not to pun intended tied up into you know <laughs> sorry I'm on a roll this morning I don't know bear with me it's, but at the same time let me say even though that's the case we should be careful not to thus dismiss the Sabbath altogether because when you come to this there is the principle and there's the practice embedded in the Sabbath and both are important the principle and the practice and the principle is, is to aim at what Rabbi Abraham Heschel has called a sanctification of time, where we, we treat time as if it is unvaried and homogenous too often, as if all the hours are alike, quality less, empty shells. But biblically, that is just not the case. There are sacred moments. There are sacred events. There are what he calls sanctuaries in time that emerge from the stream of a week or a year. And so I love the image. He says Sabbath is a cathedral. It's an architecture of time. And the practice of Sabbath, that Sabbath day, in fact, each week, is not to mix metaphors, a school where we learn to approach all of the rest of time as holy. One day out of seven, set apart from the rest, from the other six days as a focal point for all of the other days of the week. But the question for us, of course, is, but, okay, if that's the principle, then what about the practicalities? How, do we, what, how does the Sabbath get applied for us in light of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? What part of that command is just principle and what part of it is the nature of the practice of it? See, that's, that's the problem. There's a lot of... There's a lot of defining and applying that you have to do. And the early Christians would have had these same questions. I mean, Jesus clearly said that he did not come to abolish the law. And in that statement, he would have, of course, included the Sabbath. He said, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so there is no relaxing of the Sabbath command in the New Testament. If anything, just like the rest of the law, it gets expanded. And that's implied in those verses in Matthew chapter 5 that I just quoted. But at the same time, there is an obvious difference 
in the way that Old Testament people believed and practiced Sabbath in the way the followers of Jesus did. Because here in Mark 2, for example, Jesus' practice of Sabbath was confusing to these Jewish religious leaders. We might say offensive even. So much so that in chapter 3, verse 6, if you see the way it ends there, they plot to kill him. I mean, they're so upset, they're so enraged, they're so offended that they decide he needs to die. And so we're left with a conundrum here that what Jesus understood to be the fulfillment of the Sabbath appeared to these religious leaders to be a disregard for the Sabbath. What Jesus considered obedience, they considered disobedience. And so there is an obvious difference between the Jews in the Old Testament practicing the Sabbath in the way the followers of Jesus were doing and still do, as modeled by Jesus himself here. That's the rub. That's the rub of this text for us this morning And so here's what we want to do in order to practice the Sabbath properly, because again, that's the aim. That's what we're after. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to expand it, to make it even more expansive. And so if we're going to be people who, in both the principle and the practice, seek obedience to this Sabbath command, you have to realize two things. And this is really the issue. If you can realize these two things, then everything else kind of takes care of itself. You need to realize, first, in order to practice Sabbath, you have to realize that there's something greater than the Sabbath. And the second thing is, if you're going to practice Sabbath appropriately, not only do you have to realize that there is something greater than the Sabbath, you have to realize there is someone greater than the Sabbath. And when you you see the thing and the person who are both greater than the Sabbath, that the Sabbath itself points forward to, then that that is the key to practicing it well, okay? So let's follow along in the text as we look at those two things. So first, in order to practice Sabbath properly... As I've said, you have to realize that there is something greater than the Sabbath. And here we're focused on verse 27. If you want to look there where Jesus, Jesus makes two really summary statements about the Sabbath. One in verse 27 and one in verse 28. And that really is going to be our focus. But in verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay. Two very different ways of thinking about the law and thinking about this particular command in the law. The Pharisees believe deeply that man was made for the Sabbath. And if man was made for the Sabbath, then by implication, rules are more important than people. And you can see that bearing out in this text. On one Sabbath, we're told, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field and they began to eat some of the grain. That's verse 23. The Pharisees saw this and got really upset. They objected on the basis of their own legalistic understanding of the Sabbath and their actions, they were told, they they concluded that the actions of Jesus' disciples here were unlawful on two accounts. First, it violated the rule against walking more than 1,999 paces or 800 meters. That's a real thing. And therefore, it's okay to walk 1,999, but once you hit 2,000, you're in trouble. That's the, way, that's the way the oral tradition worked. And so this was considered a journey because of the distance they had walked, they had walked too far on the Sabbath. It was a breach of Sabbath. And then again, number two, there was also a rule against reaping, and this, in their minds, counted as reaping. They were bringing in, you know, the, I mean, you know, but that's the way they, they thought about these things. So it's important to note that these were not violations of the biblical commands against work but were codified 
codified applications of those commands by the religious leaders. So the Bible doesn't say that 1,999 paces was okay, but 2,000 was a violation of the Sabbath. The religious leaders said that. And then they raised their interpretation or their application of the scriptures to the level of the scripture so that the two became one and the same. Now, why would they do that? Why do we still do that? They did it because they were religious. And in religion, the purpose of obedience, the purpose of the law, is to assure that you're right with God. And so when it comes to the law, the details matter. The details are the most important part. You have to know exactly what you've got to do and what you're not supposed to do because your standing with God is based on you doing it right. And so religious people tend to worry over precise definitions and applications and so forth of what counts, in this case, what counts as work and what doesn't and what day is right and what isn't and when it starts and when it ends and all of these things and what gets lost in all of that meticulous application of things is the bigger intent of the law. You get stuck in the details and miss what Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 23 as the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness, and so forth. And this is the problem with legalism. It is obsessed with obeying the rules, but ironically ends up not obeying the most important part of the rules. Isn't that fascinating? So as a counterpoint, Jesus reminded them of a story from the Old Testament about King David. You see that there, uh, and uh, it's from 1 Samuel 21, if you want to look it up later, verses 1 through 6. David And his men were hungry and desperate, and they were on the run from Saul, and they entered into the house of God because they hadn't eaten in a number of days. And so the tabernacle, and they took the consecrated bread that was there, that it was lawful only for the priests to eat. It was against God's law for anyone other than the priests to eat. And David went and just took the bread and ate it and gave some to his men. Let me translate. They broke the rules. And here's the really shocking thing, is Jesus is implying, by calling to mind that story, that David's breaking of the rules was okay. That it was the right thing for him to do. That it was, in fact, proper, even though it was not lawful. Now, for a couple of reasons. And the first reason was, is their need, their hunger, was more important than the rule. I'm treading on thin ice here. If you have to make a choice between the rules and love, then either you're not understanding the rules properly or you're not understanding the demands of love properly. There is no situation, this is what Jesus is teaching, there is no situation where you have to choose one or the other. Now I'll come to the second reason in just a minute, but let me kind of harp on that for just a second. The Pharisees believed that man was made for the Sabbath. Jesus taught that the Sabbath was made for man. And if the Sabbath was made for man, then people are more important than rules. The rules are just a means to an end. They are a guide for how to love God and others. 
Uh, if Sabbath was made for man, then there's something more important. There's something greater than the Sabbath itself, something that the Sabbath was pointing to. We get a hint of this in the version of the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy, which we, which we read where it says, you shall do no, no work, you or your son or your servants or your ox or your donkey or even the sojourner in your midst. And so the, the, the Sabbath command there in Deuteronomy, the commentators say, in Exodus is tied to the creation, in Deuteronomy is tied to redemption, and in, and in Deuteronomy it's changed quite significantly. It says, remember you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord brought you out, therefore... In, in light of that, the Lord commands you to keep the Sabbath day. And so the Sabbath there in Deuteronomy 4 was not just an act of worship. It was a form of justice. You didn't just rest on the Sabbath. You were, be, you were to be bringing rest to your sons and daughters and even your animals and to the land itself and to the sojourners in your midst. And if you think I'm overstating or missing the point, then just consider the, the scene here in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It is illustrative of this point. There was a man with a shriveled hand, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day, which provoked the ire of the legalistic Pharisees, because in their interpreting of the law, it was indeed irregular or unlawful. Their Sabbath regulations did not allow it. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to them. It says, look there, verse 5, he looked at he looked at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. I mean, this was a big deal. Those words are really strong words in, in the original language. They were not just kind of wrong about this. They had missed the point altogether. And that, too, is the problem with legalism. It makes you set in your ways, not open to how you might be wrong. They are convinced of their rightness because their, their rightness is what mattered most. Their rightness was their righteousness they believed that God loved and accepted them because they were right. And the problem is, is if you get too settled into that, it can destroy love. And that makes God angry. Because when you see Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. And Jesus responded to their lack of love towards this man and the hardness of their heart due to their commitment to their law-keeping. And it really is amazing. It says, that he, was, it says he had two emotions. He was angry and he was brokenhearted at the same time. It really is a marvelous. So he was angry and he was brokenhearted, brokenhearted because God does not, God does not abide by that sort of lack of love. Man, man was made for, um, man was made for the Sabbath is legalism. And there's no rest in legalism. That's the problem. You work, you strive, you achieve, you obsessively micromanage your obedience. Don't you see the irony? Don't you see the irony? That's not rest. That's an approach to the Sabbath that's the opposite of rest. Sabbath is all about rest, and there's no rest in that. In legalism, the rules are more important than people, and what's lost is love. But Sabbath is all about neighbor love, mercy, bringing rest. And so we learn that you cannot practice Sabbath properly unless you realize that the day and the details are not the most important thing. There's something greater than the Sabbath. And it's a way of life, of resting and loving that the Sabbath points to. Secondly, or finally, if that, that might comfort you even more, finally, in order to practice the Sabbath properly, not only do you have to realize that there's something greater than the Sabbath, but there's also someone greater than the Sabbath. And here we have in mind verse 28. It's this other summary statement Jesus makes where he says, and so the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I said that there were two reasons why it was okay for David, back to David, to break the rules the first was because people are more important than need and their hunger 
trumped the ceremonial aspects of the lawfulness of their eating the bread. At least that's the way Jesus is. I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. The second thing was, the second reason was because David himself, David, was more important than the rule. It was warranted because of David's importance as the king, as the forerunner of the Messiah, the messianic savior who would deliver his people from sin and death and bring their ultimate rest. So when Jesus alluded to David's story here, it was not as an excuse for his hungry disciples. It was as precedent. He's saying it was okay then for David to suspend the rules because of who David was, but now one who's greater than David has come. If David can suspend the rules to take care of his men, then surely I can. I don't serve the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is surely what Paul means in Colossians, which we read, when he says, don't let anybody judge you in questions about food and drink or the Sabbath and so forth. He says these are a shadow of things to come, but not, but not the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. In other words, the Sabbath rule points to Jesus and his work. He is the Sabbath. He is the source of true rest. The one day a week resting of the Sabbath is just a taste of the deep divine rest that we need most. And the only way we get it is in the one greater than the Sabbath who has come into the world. Tim Keller has been extremely helpful to me here in describing what he calls the work that's underneath our work, which is the real problem. It's, like, it's not just our work. It's that there's something, there's something that's motivating us underneath our work. He describes it as the murmur of self-reproach. This murmur of self-reproach that's always telling us, you're not doing enough, There's a, you could do more, you really messed this up, you know, that's not enough, you're not enough, you know, and, and we just, we live in the constant drone of this murmur of self-reproach, and it makes us driven, and it makes us anxious, and it ruins our work, and there really are, at the end of the day, two ways to live, and they're illustrated beautifully, man, I'm going to really date myself here, in the famous movie, Chariots of Fire, I think it was an 80s movie, right? Like way back in the 80s. And it's kind of boring, but I mean, it's, it's, really an amazing, it's really an amazing movie. It's based on the true story of the 1924 Olympics, specifically the 100-yard dash, if you're old enough to remember the story. It's a showdown between a Jewish Englishman named Harold Abrams and a devout Scottish, probably Presbyterian, Christian. No, he was, actually, he was, I think he was uh, not Protestant, he was Catholic, but named Eric, Eric Liddell, Eric Liddell. And when asked about the race, this showdown, the whole, the whole thing is kind of centering on this one running of the 100-yard dash. When asked about the race, Abrams said this. He said, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. I mean, can you imagine that? The pressure of that statement? I have 10 Seconds, 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Now, Liddell, on the other hand, who was going to, you know, it was these two guys and they were the favorites and it was just who was going to win. The other, the other one, he described, they asked him the same question why he ran and here was his very different response. He said, God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. If you're not familiar with the movie, Liddell was the favorite to win the race, but what happens is, is the, uh, the, final, the final heat fell on the Sabbath, and he refused to run. So he forfeited the gold medal in what he felt like was obedience to God. And 
Okay, put that aside for a minute. What I want you to see, though, is Abraham's was anxious. He was so anxious to prove himself, to justify his existence. The whole world was watching. He had 10 lonely seconds to prove that he, you know, as Rocky Balboa said, you know, why do you fight so hard? To prove I'm not a bum, right? Uh, just to prove I'm not a bum. His opponent, Liddell, was so free. He was so free that he could even forego running in the final. The gold medal, didn't matter, gold medal didn't matter to him. Two very, very different ways to live. And Harold Abrams is an illustration of Keller's work underneath the work. He was weary, so weary, in fact, that he was weary even when he rested. Because he was never free of the anxiety of self-justification. He had to win. I mean, don't you hear the despair? I mean, isn't that just a despairing statement? I have ten lonely seconds. Eric Liddell, on the other hand, was rested even when he was exerting himself. He was free from that work underneath the work. He felt God's pleasure when he ran, but he didn't have to run. He wasn't running for himself. He, was, he ran knowing he was already loved by God, no matter what the outcome of the race was, so much so that when it came to it, he didn't even have to run in the race. And that's the key. That's the key. To running, that's the key to running well. It's the key to working well. It's the key to resting well and to finding that balance, that soul, the in and out between work and rest, the doing your, your, your work heartily unto the Lord with soul. In our membership vows, faith in Jesus is described as resting. And it's not resting from work. Let's be careful. It's resting in our work because we're resting from the work underneath our work, the work of earning our status with God through our performance. And the only way that that kind of rest, that true rest, the only way to find it is to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone because on the cross, this one here who is healing, you know, healing this, this man with a withered hand, later in his life, at the end of his life on the cross, at the end of all that he has done, after establishing a righteousness through obedience for all who trust in his work more than their own and dying as a substitute to pay the penalty for our sins, satisfying divine justice in one of his last statements with his very dying breath yelled out from the cross, it is finished. Now, what did that mean? It did not mean that the work was finished. The work was not finished. There's still work to do, right? I mean, there's still work to do and we should do it heartily with soul as to the Lord. And we can because when he said it is finished, he was referring to the work underneath the work. The thing that makes you truly weary, that need to prove yourself, that need to be in control of all the contingencies of your life because you can't trust anybody other than yourself to make sure life is going to go the way that you need for it to go. That thing that makes you truly weary to prove that who you are and what you do is enough. That is finished. Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. And if you trust in his work more than your own, if you rely on his power and his grace, then you can do your work. You can parent, you can befriend others, you can go into all the world with the gospel as he calls us to, and you can do it without the anxiety and the stress and the pressure of having to do it all right. Physicians will tell you that it is not the length of sleep but the depth of sleep that makes you rested. 
the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath means that there is a spiritual REM sleep. There's a deep rest of the soul. And the once a week rest of the Sabbath, it's a good start, but it's just a start. There's a deeper rest that only Jesus can give. So the question is, is are you putting your faith, are you resting your hope in Jesus Christ alone? And are you growing in repentance and faith towards that goal? Because as you do throughout your life, grow in repentance and faith, you're going to grow in the true rest, the REM, spiritual REM sleep that the soul so desperately needs. But here's what I want to say, one thing before we finish up, and it's this. None of that means that the once a week rest isn't important, it is. So back to the practice of the Sabbath. In our technological age, work and rest are so blended together. We're never completely on, and so we're never completely off. There's no routine. There's no rhythm. Our work, as a result, lacks soul. It lacks purpose. We overwork, and then we're so exhausted from overworking that we can't rest. We swing all the way over to just vacating until we're recovered enough but then we're behind in our emails and all that stuff. And so we swing back over to overworking and we, we just do not, we seem to not be able to find that, that real beautiful soul work. We need, we need the discipline of the one day and seven because we work distractedly, we rest distractedly, so we never work, we never rest as we should. We need, we need the discipline of the one day and seven, but we also need the freedom from slavishly obeying all the details. So here's the balance. It's quite beautiful, really. Lord of the Sabbath, verse 28, helps us avoid the danger of antinomianism. I'm, forgive me for the big word. And by that I mean just throwing the Sabbath out, dismissing it as, as a form of legalism, okay? But the Sabbath was made for man, verse 27, helps us avoid the danger of legalism, of becoming too rigorous and detailed and rigid. Here's what I want to leave you with. The gospel does not make obedience optional. It makes it possible, Jesus, as the one who is greater than the Sabbath, does not make Sabbath obsolete. He makes it possible for us to actually practice the Sabbath. That's the outcome. Real obedience from the heart, discipline, and delight. Discipline, not discipline without delight, where you're just slaving away. Not delight, where it's just like everything's up for grabs and there's no, right? Discipline and delight. This is the way. And so we say, with the hymnist, when he says of this, Lord, I believe a rest remains to all thy people known, a rest where pure enjoyment reigns, and thou art loved alone. Oh, that I now the rest might know, believe and enter in. Dear Savior, now the power bestow, and let me cease from sin. Listen, remove this hardness from my heart, this unbelief, remove to me, the rest of faith impart the Sabbath of thy love. Would you pray with me? And so we ask for the very same thing, Father. In this quiet moment that you would, by your Holy Spirit, because of the work of Jesus Christ, in his living and obedient life and his dying and obedient death, that you would lead us into the Sabbath rest of your love, that you would quiet as the prophet says, our souls with your love, that we would hear your song being sung over us and that the result would be that it would quiet our hearts. As the psalmist says in Psalm 23, that we would, that you would make us lie down. You're gonna have to force us because we're stubborn and we're rebellious. And even at the end of all of this talking about these things, we still, we still lack the faith to believe that 
were we to stop for one moment that the world would go on without us. We are that self-obsessed and consumed with our own with, with, with our own striving and with trusting in our own effort and power and our own heart. But Father, would you come and in this moment, would you make us lie down in obedience to find the rest that you so desire to give us because you are indeed the Lord, our shepherd and you lead us beside still waters. You can quiet us the way you can quiet the stream. And we so desperately need that this morning, some of us, just from the the constant drone of self-reproach and self-hatred that dominates our hearts. Would you silence the voice of the enemy in light of the great love you have for us in Jesus? Would you subdue our hearts to yourself? And then would the result be beautiful, beautiful rhythm of work and rest in us as a people to the praise of your glory as we live holy lives in in the midst of this culture that so desperately needs these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let Let me end the service in the same way that we started. If you are laboring and heavy laden, if you're struggling and burdened, if you're weary from holding on so tight to your life because If you lose your grasp on it, it's just going to spin out of control. If you're burned out, if you're tired of carrying a heavy load, come to Jesus. I know it may feel to you like if you do that, if you dare to do that, he's going to take everything away from you that you love. But the truth is, if you will come, he will give you the rest and the joy your soul so desperately needs. That's the truth. Come to him. He's the only one that can give you rest. If you're here and you've never put your faith in him, come to him. He's the only one that can quiet the murmur of self-reproach in your own heart. But if you are here and your faith is in Jesus, then hear, then, then see him sending you now. But he's sending you out to do the great work he's called you to in the world. But first, there is this wonderful, amazing stretch of time from now until when the sun goes down today for you to just enjoy taking a break. So the work that he sent you to now is the work of rest. Go and fill this day with rest, with joy, with worship, with people you love with the things that bring your heart its greatest delight. Do it for his sake, because that's what he wants. And then go into the week and get after it. You with me? But rest first. Your rest doesn't come at the end of the week. It's here at the beginning, waiting for you now so that you can go into the week with all the energy that you need to live for his glory. So receive this benediction. It's a promise of rest. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go and rest in his peace.